0: Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com.
1: Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. The bee population in North America has been in decline for more than 10 years. Scientists began to notice extreme depopulation up to 90% annually in some regions and named the phenomena Colony Collapse Disorder. Bees play a substantial role in the agriculture industry as pollinators of all manners of fruit, vegetable, herbs, flowers, just about anything that grows from the ground. This is many in Pennsylvania concern as bees pollinate a large percentage of the crop varieties Grown in the state. Last month, Penn State Center for Pollinator Research released the Pennsylvania Pollinator Protection Plan, or P4, a program to stop and reverse the bee depopulation. Joining us in the studio today is Karen Rocaseca, Pennsylvania state apiarist, and on the line from his bee farm in Millerton, Pennsylvania, is Royal Draper, owner of Draper Super Bee Apiaries. Mr. Uh, Draper, welcome to the program. Ms. Rocaseca, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much.
1: If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Actually, this is one of the more important conversations that we'll have because... Uh, Sometimes I wonder whether uh, many people here in Pennsylvania and really uh, around the country realize just how important pollinators are to our food supply. All right, so, uh, uh, Karen Rock, a second, let me start with you. Collapsing colony disorder. It's been going on for some time, as I mentioned, most of uh, the past decade or so. Uh, From time to time, I'll hear reports that it's actually improving. So I want to start the program by asking Your opinion, if you would describe the status of the bee population right now in Pennsylvania, what would it be?
2: Well, colony collapse disorder became known a few years ago. It became a very important topic of study. Now we're not seeing the exact symptoms of of this. It's also called CCD. We're not seeing the symptoms of this showing, but we are showing declines in the bee population and population of other pollinators. There are many reasons for the decline in the pollinators, and it can include things like the um, the habitat of the pollinators and the bees is uh, going away due to building, the lack of floral diversity, which means that there are not blooming plants available That the the bees and other pollinators like for the whole entire uh, growing season. It can be um, chemicals that are in the environment, pesticides, herbicides, all kinds of things like that. Um, Even the environment, if you have a, a warm spell in the spring and then it's followed by two weeks of extreme cold, that can play havoc on on uh, the life cycle of the bees.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned CCD, and you kind of anticipated one of the things that I, I wanted to ask is that, yes, uh, colony collapse has gotten a lot of immediate attention over the past uh, decade or so. Uh, but, you know, something that I'm hearing a whole lot, and actually as I research this program today, hearing a lot more about something called uh, Varroa mites. What are varroa mites? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes,
2: you are. Varroa mites are uh, possibly the number one pest of, uh, or the number one problem for honeybees right now. It's a parasite that latches onto the honeybee, and um, new research is showing that instead of feeding on the hemolymph or the bee blood, they are actually feeding on the fatty bodies of the bees. These fatty bodies control uh, at least nine essential functions, in the bee's life so you can imagine if a parasite is draining um, the energy out of the bee it's going to have a major effect on the on the bee it may not kill them outright but it will definitely affect their life Uh,
1: mr draper let me turn to you and talk about uh, your bees in uh, northeastern pennsylvania what kind of uh, uh, what status have you seen over the past year or so
3: there's definitely been some changes in the, in the bees' survival rates over the winter in particular. Uh, again, I, there's a lot of factors affecting it, like Karen had mentioned. I mean, the weather itself has definitely been unstable. Uh, that's affected a lot of things with uh, cold patches or droughts and, and all of that. And uh, Honestly, this last winter, we were actually happy to only lose about 50% of our hives. Mm. Uh, and that's a lot, but you, to for us to be happy about that seems crazy, but two previous winners, we lost ninety percent uh, so over a three year period when we only lost fifty percent, we were happy when back when my grandfather and father started the business you know forty five years ago, you might lose ten percent of your hives at the most, and uh, so and you were doing good. Uh, but uh, when we're losing this many hives, uh, even the 50 percent is a costly thing. And this is what's happening globally. This isn't really just to our area here.
1: When you say that uh, you lost 50% over the winter and you, you talked a little about uh, about the weather, was the weather the biggest factor? Was it the only factor in the die-off?
3: Definitely not. I think that there's a lot of stress factors involved in this. And I said throughout our regular season of production and everything, it starts right out in the spring with, obviously, the, the, the changes in the weather and setting up for the season. But then you have other things that are stress factors. The mites are definitely one of them. Uh, that is a weakening factor to the bees then we have things such as just air pollution uh, you could have solar radiation this is why it's collapsed colony disorder I mean really there's not a specific we can't say it's this one thing it's a combination I believe of all these different stress factors that weaken the bees so you go throughout your season and the bees just they're surviving it's warm weather the queen is laying eggs they're repopulating But they're not gaining strength. In fact, I think throughout the season they weaken. And when we get to the winter season, say November, uh, and that's when we see a lot of collapse, is that the hive has gotten to the point where they've been weakened so much that that cold weather sets in and they just don't have the stamina and the hive collapses.
1: So what do you do about it? What do you do to try to stop some of these things from happening?
3: You know, it's been a real challenge. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, initially uh, it started with, you know, you do more hive inspection. We didn't spend a lot of time in the hives before. It was you'd go out and look at the bees, and you could almost tell from looking at the entrance activity how the bees were doing and whether you needed to super or inspect or anything. So initially it started with just checking in the hives more often, looking for mites, doing a mite count, um, and, and just seeing what the health of the bees looked like. Uh, and then we tried, you know, we went to natural-type treatments. where uh, We used certain essential oils and, you know, that kind of stuff in the hive. And then, of course, ultimately, uh, you end up trying to use some of the approved miticides to take care of the varroa mite. At least that's one stress factor and probably the only one we really have control over, any kind of influence, where we hopefully can knock the mites back so this bees can hopefully gain strength throughout
1: the season. Uh, a miticide, I have to ma- admit that's a word I've never heard before, but uh, does that uh, miticide kill the mites without harming the bees?
3: It's supposed to, yes. Karen would, can tell you more about that. <laughs>
1: okay. Well, Karen, what about that?
2: There's there's a variety of miticides on the market right now that have been approved for treating mites in the honeybee hive. Some of them work better than others. There are uh different things on the label that the beekeeper would have to uh, pay close attention to as far as the temperature the timing the amount of brood or um you know on un- on un- uh born bees uh, the some of these different chemicals can cause dieback in in the hive to a point and you've got to weigh your odds you also want to consider rotating your treatments so that uh, there's not a resistance being built up to the treatments. Mm-hmm. By the
1: so, so that happens. A resistance can be built yes. up. Yes. All the time they need to rotate. That's definitely true. Mm-hmm. So, Karen, Royal just said that uh, uh, they had 50 percent, uh, you know, that uh, half of the, the hives had uh, died last year. Half of the bees had died last year. Overall, the state had about 52% in the winter of 2016-17. Now, you know, as Royal said, they were actually happy that it was only 50%. 52% still sounds like an awful high percentage.
2: It It is a very high percentage. Um, it it's can be an unsustainable level. We're lucky that uh, beekeepers are, uh, for the most part, very good at what they do, and they will go in and... Uh, Make increases in their hive, they call them splits, and that that definitely helps, but it's um an acceptable level of loss would be ten to fifteen percent as far as most beekeepers are concerned. You know we go in with some weak colonies and um you know some of them will not make it over the winter but fifty fifty two percent sixty percent is is very tough to deal with, and it's it's very disheartening.
1: Before we take phone calls, you know, one of the reasons that, uh, as I mentioned right now up front in our introduction, one of the reasons I wanted to do the program is this is so important, and it's probably a good time to explain to many people who are not familiar with uh, the, the importance of pollinators. Why are bees and pollinators so important to Pennsylvania's crops and food
2: supply? Well, the, the bees and pollinators, as as the name pollinator implies, uh, will pollinate uh, different fruits and and vegetables and we we all enjoy having a variety of food to eat so that's that's definitely key for um, watching out for the health of the pollinators there are some it's plants all types of
3: bees. yeah it's, it's not just honeybees right. you know bumblebees you're talking yellow jackets hummingbirds you know they all pollinate i um, uh, so they're all very important and they've all kind of been in decline not just the honeybees well,
1: uh, question about that though uh, you know are there s- some crops certain crops that rely more on pollinators than others and the second part of that question is are some of these crops in danger if the pollinators go away
2: uh yes there there are um, almonds out in California in the winter um, almost half of the honeybees in the in the United States end up out there pollinating the almond crop there are other crops uh, more important to Pennsylvania, uh, apples, blueberries, uh, the melons, cherries. Those all um, honeybees share in the pollination with that. There are other natives that help, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: interesting on the apples, just a little factoid on it. You know, one hive of bees in an acre of apple trees can in- potentially increase production 150%.
1: Well, something Royal you just said is very important to point out as well. That when you say increase production, that much of the pollination, why it's so important is it increases production. That some of these crops would not go away if the pollinators died out or you know were eliminated or extinct. But that what pollinators actually do when they move around is increase production. Correct? That's
3: exactly. That's without the bees, and the honeybee and there's one reason why the honeybees are so good at it, in particular, is they're kind of what I've always called flower faithful. When they're working on a specific crop and we'll say apples, they will work apple, 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 they go from blossom to blossom uh, is comparatively a bumblebee in the spring, I've watched them go to the apple tree, they fly down to a dandelion. Then they go over to a mustard plant and maybe back to the apple tree. So they're jumping to different flowers. That does not provide good cross-pollination. Honeybees, once they start on a particular flower, stay on it. So, for example, in the morning when I walk to work by my apple trees, I may see 10 bees in that apple tree. By the afternoon, you know, there's a 1,000-plus working the same tree because they've gone back, communicated, The location of that tree with the bees at GPS way before we did and they will tell other bees in the hive this is where this tree is located so now you have other bees going to the same tree doing the same thing going from apple blossom to apple blossom and that's why they're such good pollinators.
1: Royal, do you have uh, dandelions and clover in your yard? We sure do. Do you uh, try to kill those dandelions and clover? Never. Okay. Never do. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a reason I asked that question. Karen, I'll ask you the same question. I mean, I, we, I kind of said it in a, a joking sort of way, but this is something that is an, has an impact on pollinators. That, And I have to admit, I've been guilty that uh, so many people, we want our yards to be our grass to be green, perfect, no dandelions, no clover and the bees and the pollinators have relied on that right karen
2: yes that's correct um years ago they used to sell grass seed with clover seed mixed in with it and actually i think it's pretty
3: nice. i love it too absolutely i put clover in my yard on purpose when i seeded it so
1: Yeah, well, you know, as a kid, I got stung so many times in the feet by running through the clover. (laughs) You know that. (laughs) You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
0: Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart.
1: We were talking about Pennsylvania's declining pollinator population, and the state has a new plan, the, four, the P4, uh, Pennsylvania Pollinator Protection Plan. I think that uh, what we should do, that's kind of like uh, Peter Pepper picked a picker, no, Peter Piper picked a pecker and say Pennsylvania pol- Polluter pol- Protection Plan. You know, I, before you leave, Karen, I think I'm going to have you do that. But anyway, uh, we'll talk about the plan here in just just a few minutes, what's being done to uh, save uh, Pennsylvania pollinators. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, the phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Five Let's take a phone call from Melissa in Harrisburg. Melissa, you're on the air.
4: Hi, thank you.
1: Yes, um,
4: I was just wondering what their thoughts were about the recent study that showed that there is actually being a, ma- a mass die off of most flying insects around the world. And also what they thought about um, uh, insecticides like, you know, neonics and stuff as being also a uh, a problem.
1: Thank you very much for your call, Karen. During the break, you actually mentioned to me that it is not just bees; it is not just pollinators that we are seeing in decline, but insects of all types. So, if you would, her, her question about that.
2: We all realize that we need to have pesticides as part of a integrated pest management program for crops and um, other management of other things. The key is using the least toxic pesticide that will get the job done to follow the label exactly, to um, not spray when there's foragers out on flowers, to uh, possibly mow or trim the flowers off before you spray, uh, not spraying when it's windy to Reduced drift spraying when the pollinators aren't out flying, you know, early, early in the morning or at dusk. These are all things that that, that can be done that will help pollinators. So letting your uh, beekeeper that's nearby r- know that you're going to be spraying or applying chemicals is also um, something that is is very helpful. Are there natural you know, ways? I gotta, I gotta mention. Sure, go I, I think that's
3: definitely part of an issue with with the application of these things, and it's. I've seen it myself in our own area here is that when you get certain farmers that most of these sprays are in a water solution. So they'll go out and spray, and I can see on windy days, and you can see the cloud moving across the field. And you know it goes further than that. And, you know, this is just my opinion, but I honestly feel that if these are in a water solution, how much of that active ingredient just ends up in the clouds? and just moves around the entire globe. That Every time it rains, we all get micro doses of that, and which would affect every insect uh, and even us uh, in other animal life throughout the globe, really.
1: Well, let me ask you this, Ro. Are there natural methods you use to try to uh, control some of uh, the insects, the, uh, you know, the other insects that you don't want?
3: It, that is always a, a very tough thing uh, to do. I mean, for us in the beekeeping business, I mean, the mite is our, <laughs> our key thing. Uh, so otherwise, I usually don't do any type of treatments for uh, any other type of insects uh, in our area. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, we do in our old barn because we have an eighteen nineties barn here, so I mean we do have a problem with cluster flies and things like that, but we do a treatment that 's done inside the building, so it 's not even outside, and it doesn 't really affect the bees in any way
1: Karen, any natural ways for treating bees yeah, yeah. I mean you know because I mean the pesticides are being used for uh, you know a number of reasons, but are there and i 'm sure that most people Especially in this atmosphere, when we're saying that uh, you know the, the pollinator population is declining so much that there are a lot of people who are probably looking for natural ways and ways to stay away from pesticides and insecticides. Are there natural ways that work?
2: Yes, there there are some ways that that will work. Um, there's a lot of different organizations that are are working on uh, more organic, um, natural methods of pest control. Of course, you have to be careful because an organic chemical can be just as toxic to a pollinator as um, a neonicotinoid. Uh, there's uh, Some people will uh, put in companion planters, you know, plants uh, that will help control insects.
3: Um, this is true. Speaking of kind of like mint, a lot of stuff in the mint family is good for that. Mm-hmm.
2: Right, mm-hmm. right. Um I had
1: a call here from Linda in Hummelstown also said talking about plants as alternatives native plants are being replaced by grass and uh, you know that there there are a lot of let's face it not only people trying to stay away from clover and dandelions in their yards but also planting non-native Pennsylvania plants here. What impact does that have Karen?
2: There, there are a large variety of plants that that pollinators will like, and it, it is actually good to have a good diversity of plants. you have to be careful when when you start um, planting some that are considered invasive plants you know you don't want to be be planting those, but there are a good variety of plants is is what um, honeybees and a lot of other pollinators. Well, yeah, poll- it's
3: good to look for plants that will bloom at different times of the year. That gives more for the bees to work throughout the whole season, so you have a much more bloom over a longer period of time.
1: You know, a lot of people probably don't realize that honeybees here in Pennsylvania uh, are not native to the state.
3: And they're not native to North America.
1: Right, right. Yeah. When, were they, <laughs> when were they introduced?
3: You know, I found a, a, something on that, that the first ship that came over. They actually had honeybees listed as cargo. Uh, was all the way back in 1638, coming from England.
1: I wonder what the apiarist in 1638 looked like, uh, Royal.
3: Well, it was a log. It was a section of a tree. Uh, Is what the bees lived in natively. Uh, old gum tree, hollowed out, had the bees in it. In fact, here at our place of business, we have like seven of them behind our warehouse that are functioning hives in a log just like that hmm.
1: let's go to gary in juniata county gary you're on the air
3: scott i still have to
5: stick up for farmers but i will tell you about a program in england we have the guest guys. we had a professor of agriculture from england come and was so shocked that we just have all these monocultures which is basically all corn all soybeans all corn all soybeans Over there, they're paid to break up their plots so that they actually put pollinator habitats out in the middle of fields. And I'm sure, you know, if we did that, um, you know, it would certainly help the pollinators. And, you know, if the farmer got paid at least something for it, you know, for taking the crops out of production. But the other thing is, on the spraying thing, you know, you have to stay on top of it, but we all have to get our pesticide applicator's licenses. And they teach us about spraying on certain days and the type of sprays that we can use and the time of day to spray. So, obviously, you know, people make mistakes, and, and I'm not going to stick up for all farmers, but um, there has to be a happy medium where you can use some pesticides, and it doesn't always have to be the latest and greatest. I mean, sometimes we can go backwards and use something that maybe doesn't work quite as good. Maybe you have to put two applications on it, but maybe it's safer for the bees. So, anyway, I just wanted to stick up for farmers oh. a little bit. Thank okay,
1: you very Gary. much. Thank you very but much. I want to say what,
3: what Gary said was good thing that he said about basically crop rotation. Uh, and that's something that was used in days of old, of where you would plant your corn, but then the next year, let's say you put in a field of buckwheat, and the advantage of buckwheat was, it itself is almost a natural herbicide. Buckwheat would so take over the uh, the field that you planted in that the weeds wouldn't have anywhere to grow. Uh, and then you harvested the seed, you were able to till the plant back in, nitrogen that would go back into the soil, and you would constantly rotate like that. Uh, which would be very beneficial, and that would be a good thing to be doing nowadays. It's just that it doesn't have the uh, the monetary value that the corn and everything does, so it just mm. isn't used very often.
1: I, I, Karen, I see you uh, nodding your head. I mean, what Gary suggested is, that they do in England is that a good idea here in America?
2: Yes, and there there are programs out there where they are encouraging farmers to plant what they call hedgerows at the end of the fields where they'll have um, pollinator-friendly plants. And the farmers that have done that, it it has definitely increased um, area for the pollinators. There are farmers that will set aside, uh, you know, anywhere from a half an acre to several acres where they'll plant uh, things like sunflowers and other uh, pollinator-friendly plants, too.
1: Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about the P4 plan, Pennsylvania's Pollinator Protection Plan. What are some of the highlights of that plan?
2: The The plan was um, written by a number of people across Pennsylvania, and uh, the Penn State Center for Pollinator Research, with um, uh, the experts up there, they're known around the world, and they have kind of spearheaded... That with uh, the Department of Ag, and done a done a really good job. It has um, uh, four parts so far, um, and it has best management practices that are suggested for different people, and that would include uh, beekeepers, farmers, landscapers, uh, other governmental agencies, um, electrical companies, all kinds of people.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's best practices. What mm-hmm. else?
2: Um, it has different different tips on, um, on ways you can help the pollinators, uh, different ideas on uh, management's uh, ideas and things that you can do to uh, increase populations and encourage pollinators to set up in your area.
1: What about individuals? I mean, uh, you're talking about uh, what we've talked about a lot, mm-hmm. large-scale operations. But what about individuals? I have to admit that the times we've talked about this on this program in the past, many, many people have come forward and say that they make a conscious effort to try to you know, maintain and increase the pollinator population, to be pollinator-friendly in their yards.
2: Good. That, that's good to hear. There are um, suggestions in the the P four for homeowners. Uh, there are lists of plants that uh, are suggested if they're interested in planting uh, more pollinator friendly plants. Allowing some clover and some dandelions to grow in your yard. Um, you know, encouraging your your township to be a bee friendly township things like that, um, There's there are a lot of suggestions listed in the, in the pollinator protection plan. And
1: we have a link to that on our website, WITF.org. Let's go to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, you're on the air. Uh, yes. Hello? Hi. Hi. Um, I'm just calling because I see
5: people uh, using things like Roundup, um, and I know that's also made by Monsanto, who makes a lot of the neonicotinoids. Um, you know, the insecticides. Um, when you're using something like Roundup, okay, you're getting a, a couple of those dandelions
3: killed or those weeds that you don't like. But where does that stuff go? Those chemicals go into the groundwater, into the streams, into our lakes, you know, eventually. And who knows how long it takes to have that break down? Um, you're affecting the water and the food that the animals and the insects have have to um, use, you know, just like we need water and food.
1: Mm. Um, Elizabeth, thank you very much for your call. So, Royal, is there a trade off? I mean, what she's talking about is the ecosystem. I don't I think
3: there's always a trade off with anything. I mean, if we can use anything minimally is to our betterment. But, you know, I, I kind of look at the bees as the, uh, remember the old miner's canary. And the miner would take a canary in the mine with them. And if the canary died, they knew the toxic levels around them were getting high and they should get out. Uh, We're seeing not just the honeybee, but all the insects out there uh, being affected by something. Uh, This something is is weakening and killing them. That is kind of the canary effect. We're seeing that happen to them. We know it's affecting us, but problem is we have nowhere we can go. Uh, Like the miner could get out, but we can't do that
1: question for you, Karen, before we take another phone call. Uh, Royal was talking earlier about weather conditions, and that's always unpredictable. What about climate change? Is climate change having an impact? Could it have an impact on the pollinator population?
2: It, it could. There, you know, Everything is interrelated, as, as they've been bringing up earlier on this, too. Um, it, what seems like a small impact on one thing can have kind of a domino effect down the road. So any kind of a, of a change will definitely have an impact on, on something. And being, um, there's, there's so many different varieties of insects and they all have different, slightly different, um, Needs and, and but, characteristics She's right,
3: you know, I wanted to just say Since we're on the, uh, the weather thing you know, Think about uh, how even maple sap works You have in the tree This is kind of gives you the idea How even our nectar and the flowers, the bees work It is that sun that heats that tree That draws the, nectar, draws the syrup up So that uh, they can tap that Well, for our plants They are goldenrod uh, That's pretty much done now But blooms in the fall For that to have nectar for the bees to work, we have to have the right amount of water in the ground. Uh, We have to have the right amount of sun. But if you have intense sunlight coming down in high temperatures, it just dries the plant up. There's no nectar there for the bees to even work. Um, So the weather definitely has an impact. Like any farmer, how well the bees do is hinged on weather. Right amount of sun, right amount of rain, right amount of bloom, uh, that all plays into it.
1: Let's take another phone call from Norman in Lancaster. Norman, you're on the air. Uh,
3: Thank you for taking my phone call. Uh, You talked about the issue
5: with the bees. I'm wondering uh, whether there are other insect pollinators that, in a sense, have taken up the slack for bees. Uh, If so, how can we uh, promote their growth? Uh, I do seem to feel that I'm seeing more uh, bumblebees, for example, pollinating. Mm. I'll take your response offline. All right,
1: thank you very much for your call, Karen. What about that? Other insects taking up the slack?
2: In some cases, sure, sure they have. Um, a lot of times, these pollinators will work together uh, to a point. You know, they there's a little competition going, and and so one sometimes it's it's for the betterment of of the insects, and other times it's not. In other words, a a stronger pollinator may overrun uh, the floral resources in the area, leaving less for another uh, pollinator. But in some cases, it will encourage, say, the honeybees to work even harder. so it it just depends. but in some There's cases it does
3: th- think about too in comparison in clover, that white Dutch clover in your yard, you will see honeybees on that all the time. However, the red clover you won't see honeybees on. And the reason is that their tongues aren't long enough to reach the nectar inside the blossom. You will see bumblebees work that flower. So certain flowers need certain pollinators just simply because they're, they're different uh, as far as like how they pollinate.
1: I want to thank the two of you for being with us today. And, again, uh, you can have access, you can take a look at uh, Pennsylvania's Pollinator Protection Planner P4 uh, on the state agriculture website. Also, uh, we have a link to it on our website, WITF.org. Thank both of you for being with us today. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Last week, scientists announced a breakthrough in astronomical observation. The Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO, detected the collision of two neutron stars 130 million miles away. That's a lot, excuse me, light years away. LIGO detected gravity ripples that confirmed Einstein's theories about relativity and gravity. We spoke about LIGO and gravity waves with Dr. Chad Hanna, an assistant professor of physics, astronomy, and astrophysics at Penn State's Eberly College of Science. We started by asking why this discovery is so significant.
6: We observed what we believe, are the very end stages of a uh, star's life. When stars get old and die, they collapse, and some of them form neutron stars, which are these extremely dense objects. The two neutron stars formed in a binary star system have been swirling around each other for hundreds of millions and probably billions of years. And eventually... They crashed into one another and produced gravitational waves and electromagnetic radiation that we observed here on Earth.
1: So let's talk about why that is so significant. We know that this has been happening, but what was significant is that you observed it last week, correct?
6: That's right. We had evidence that this would happen all the way back in the 1970s. Astronomers who study objects called pulsars, which are stars that periodically emit radio. This is radio, you know, just like what you think of of, as radio, emit radio that occasionally sensitive telescopes here on Earth can detect. Astronomers in the 70s found a pulsar that was in orbit with another compact object, and we believe that both of these objects are neutron stars, one of them being a pulsar. They managed to discover that these two objects were slowly spiraling in towards one another, and a process that we now know to be caused by the emission of gravitational waves, but we'd never actually seen them smash together, and we'd never actually observed gravitational wave emission itself. So last week, we were able to observe the gravitational wave emission and observe light in various wavelengths that was emitted when the two neutron stars smashed together.
1: You know, maybe it's a good time to even talk about what a neutron star is. And you talked about that density. Uh, How would you describe a neutron star and that that density that uh, you talked about?
6: So neutron stars are extremely difficult to imagine by most terms. So the way I like to describe them is the following. If you took a lunchbox and filled it with neutron star matter, it would weigh as much as a mountain. These objects are formed when some of the most massive stars, mass stars that are much bigger than our sun, eventually run out of fuel and collapse on their own weight and get smashed down into a very, very small region. Even though neutron stars are more massive than our sun, if you could uh, sort of put one in the ocean at the deepest point, it would be over half the Earth.
1: Now, you also mentioned gravitational waves. I'm trying to define some of these, uh, these terms. Uh, these are ripples in the fabric of space that go on for billions of years like light. But uh, talk about gravitational waves. And I also, I know a lot of people, when you say that uh, you, for the first time you were able to witness it, uh, what it looked
6: like. Yeah. So gravitational waves are a prediction from Einstein um, at this point over 100 years ago. And it stems from his theory of gravity. So in general relativity, Einstein said that the way we should think about gravity is when you have massive objects, they're actually warping or distorting space around them. And when the space is warped or distorted around some massive object, that means that other nearby objects no longer move in straight lines. And when we see something that we think of as gravity for example, objects orbiting each other, Um, this is actually caused by each object warping its space. If you have objects that are dynamically warping space, so a good example are two objects that are orbiting one another. Um, This could be true for, like, the Earth and the Moon. Um, Then the way that space is being changed is the force itself dynamic, which means that it's changing as the system evolves. For some really extreme systems, this change in space can be so dramatic that it actually causes ripples to spread across the universe in the actual fabric of space and time itself, and we call those gravitational waves.
1: Now, this comes two years after the discovery of two black holes colliding. How is this all related?
6: In many ways, the, way, the neutron star merger that we discussed on Monday is very similar to the black hole merger that was described two years ago. Uh, in the sense that the same basic physical principles govern both. The idea is that you have these two very dense objects, either the black holes or the neutron stars, that are orbiting one another. They're giving off gravitational waves because they're warping and distorting space-time. As they give off gravitational waves, they lose energy, and that means that they get closer and closer together. Eventually, it's sort of a runaway reaction, and they eventually smash together. Um, That basic signal happens for either the neutron stars or the black holes. The big difference here is that because the neutron stars um, were made of matter that we had, that we could, um, that was accessible, um, when they smashed together, not only were gravitational waves emitted, but also a host
1: it's fascinating to hear the story of how this all was detected. It started in Washington State, uh, then a lab in Louisiana, then uh, Argentina, you know, went around the world where it was being detected, and hearing the stories of scientists of how they found out about it, again, very fascinating. But when I think back to the the uh, black holes colliding in 2015, you know, what so many people were uh, curious about is they, they actually got to see what it looked like. What about this? How would you describe this collision and, and what it looked like?
6: So in 2015, of course, we, all that we measure are the actual changes in space caused that Earth from the gravitational waves that came a billion light years away in the universe in the case of the first black hole. So we can't actually see the objects with telescopes, but because we understand how binary black holes will evolve according to general relativity, we were able to essentially have a supercomputer simulation that demonstrated quite accurately what the binary black hole merger would have looked like. And this has become a famous um, movie in our field, I assume that's what you're referring to.
1: Yes, yes.
6: In this case, it's a little more, more difficult to exactly know what will happen. What what happened? Um, we know the basic idea of the two objects merging together will will be very similar to um, the binary black holes that we observed a while ago. Um, what we don't have a good sense of is exactly what was happening with all of the matter that's making up these neutron stars when the collision actually happened. And of course, we unfortunately, you know, can't build a telescope. Powerful enough to actually be able to zoom in and see it happening, but we can see the aftermath, and we knew that right away there was an emission of gamma ray radiation, which suggested probably that the two objects smashed together, formed a black hole with a jet shooting out of the black hole along the axis it was spinning, expelling matter at speeds near the speed of light, and we also know From observations after the fact that a lot of neutron star matter was ejected prior to the final object forming a black hole, and that this matter likely underwent several uh, nuclear reactions as it expanded, creating heavy elements such as gold and platinum. We learned all of this by observing not only the gravitational waves using LIGO, but by observing a host of electromagnetic signatures from astronomical observatories all across the world and in space.
1: Those heavy metals that you talked about, I think that that's one of the reasons that so many people found this so fascinating. First of all, it's a a discovery, but secondly, when they hear gold, they hear platinum, they hear uranium, and, uh, you know, what that could mean for here on Earth. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, when you say that this matter that was surrounding uh, the the two uh, neutron stars— How does that make its way to Earth, if at all? Am I asking the question correctly?
6: Yeah. So the matter from these particular neutron stars will um, almost certainly never make its way to Earth. But we know that systems like this exist all throughout the universe and even in our own galaxy. And maybe as often as every 10,000 years, something like this might happen in our own galaxy. And the universe is old. So there's been a lot of opportunity since the beginning of the universe for things like this to happen. And so um, there have been many such colliding neutron star systems probably in the history of our own galaxy that have been making heavy elements, and these heavy elements are ejected and fill our galaxy, just all of the space between stars. Eventually when a solar system forms, new stars are formed, these elements are sort of floating around and available to form the material for planets and other things. And so it's quite likely that are billions of years ago when it was formed, had some gold and other heavy elements available around it to to form what we found know of as Earth.
1: I'm curious, uh, other planets in our solar system, do they have some of these heavy metals as well?
6: I don't know if we know too much about the makeup of heavy elements on all of the planet. certainly likely that there's likely to be some spread throughout the solar system, yeah. Hmm.
1: So... What does this uh, do to help us understand the origins of the universe?
6: There's two different ways I can answer that question. The gravitational waves, in general, have the potential to let us see back all the way to to the beginning of the universe. We don't yet have gravitational wave instruments that are sensitive enough for this, but it's only a matter of time. Unlike normal light, gravitational waves can arrive unfiltered, quite literally, all the way back to the universe's beginning. And at some point, when we have sufficient sensitivity for gravitational wave detectors, we should be able to actually learn a lot about the beginning. For now, we have to be satisfied with trying to understand what LIGO's detections are currently teaching about our universe in the present day and seeing what that might tell us about how the universe started. So, for example, the black holes that LIGO has detected so far are, I would say, a bit heavier than what many astronomers would have expected. So it's a bit of an open question as to what's forming them, and not completely out of the question that some processes in the early universe.
1: That's Dr. Chad Hanna, Assistant Professor of Physics, Astronomy, and Astrophysics at Penn State's Everly College of Science, and uh, that was a, a revolutionary discovery last week, uh, the collision of two neutron stars. Kind of a science Friday here on uh, WITF's uh, Smart Talk. By the way, if you'd like to follow Smart Talk on uh, Twitter, you can do that, at uh, Smart Talk WITF. Me personally, I'm at Scott Lamar, if you would like to follow me on uh, on Twitter as well. want to switch gears now. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and just over an hour from now, there's a screening of an important film called Finding Jen's Voice. Pennsylvania's victim advocate Jennifer Storm joins me now to talk about the film. Jennifer Storm, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you for having me, Scott.
1: All right, so why is this film so important, Finding Jen's Voice?
4: So the film started out of a, uh, a pretty brutal homicide in Allentown, Pennsylvania, when uh, Jennifer Snyder, a 27-year-old veterinarian technician, was murdered by her partner in 2011, and she was pregnant. Um, the family had approached a local filmmaker, Tracy Schott, from Reading, Pennsylvania, to you know tell Jen's story, to, to give her a voice. Um, and as as the filmmaker started to study this, she came to the startling conclusion, um, and the data was supporting it, that homicide is the lead cause of death during pregnancy.
1: Yeah one, is, yeah, one of, one of the, one of the things that's important to point out you said to her partner but it's also important to point out that uh, the the guy who who killed her was married yes. and that uh, you know she was killed Jennifer was killed after she became pregnant with his child yes. but that is one of the the most important aspects of of this film finding Jen's voice that uh, the leading cause of death during pregnancy is homicide. Yep. Gen that is incredible. It's startling. I mean, and we know, you know, I think even
4: for those of us in the field who work with domestic violence day in and day out, I and mean, we know every nine minutes someone is abused in this country, every nine minutes, more than three women are killed every day to domestic violence. But you don't always necessarily make the correlation when you think of health crises and health issues. And when you, when you find that homicide is the leading cause of death during pregnancy, it's so startling. But when you start to wrap your brain around it and you understand the dynamics of power and control, it makes sense that for these abusers who are traditionally men, um, one of their elements is control, right? It's power, it's control. When a woman becomes pregnant, uh, it's it's a very um, powerless experience for the man, right? The, the, the female is, is now kind of carrying this new life. There are now going to be two individuals in the household. And I think for, for women, when they become pregnant as well, it, it allows them to understand, like, wow, okay, this isn't just about me anymore. And I think they start to maybe exert their humanity a little bit more. And I'm not even going to say independence or power or control because I think it's just basic humanity, right? We all have the, the right to live without... the the freedom of abuse and so that time becomes super volatile for the abuser because they start to lose control and they start to realize they can't control what's going on in that woman's body
1: jennifer snyder's story is kind of the jumping off point for Mm -hmm. uh, the 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 film finding jen's voice but uh, she's not the only victim of domestic violence that is being profiled here jen talk about that a little bit that there are about 11 different women right
4: There are there are 11 amazing brave survivors that are highlighted in this film and they all survived homicide attempts. Um, and it happened when they were pregnant. And so they're you know, bringing light to this epidemic and sharing their experience, and I think what that does is it really gives hope to the viewer and, and to those of us who are going to be in the audience watching this to show that, okay, there are, there are women who survive this and there are women who, who are able to get out of their abusive relationships and, and through a lot of support and a lot of healing uh, are able to become these outspoken, beautiful, amazing voices against domestic violence. And Erica Clark is one of the individuals highlighted. She is um, from Pennsylvania. She's one of our resilient voices, speakers. She's amazing. And so it's it, it really, the, the whole film, I mean, I, it does leave you with this startling reality of domestic violence, but it also gives you a lot of hope about um, the, what can be beyond domestic violence.
1: Jennifer, we only have about a minute left. Uh, and by the way, just not to talk about domestic violence at the end of today's program. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. I'm have another program within the next week or so where we focus uh, the entire program on uh, domestic violence. But talk about some of the logistics for seeing the film. I said it's uh, just over an hour from now and there's more to it than just the film.
4: So at 11 a.m. at the Keystone Building in Public Hearing Room 1, downtown Harrisburg, we're going to be screening Finding Jen's Voice. The film runs about 72 minutes. We're going to start at 11 a.m. And then after that, we're going to be joined by the filmmaker Tracy Schott. Jennifer Snyder's mother is going to be with us, and Secretary Wetzel and I are going to form a panel to not only talk about the film and the findings in the film, but to also talk about what we're trying to do in Pennsylvania to make things safer for domestic violence victims so secretary wetzel and i as you know we've been on your program we're passionate about bail bail reform uh there are some really easy ways uh in terms of information sharing and bail reform where we really feel that we can tighten up the the prevention that we have in pennsylvania so that we don't continue to see last year we had 102 victims killed um because of domestic violence. Mm. We want to impact those statistics next year.
1: Secretary of Corrections John Wetzel, who well Jennifer is referring to. Jennifer Storm, Pennsylvania's a victim advocate. Jennifer, thank you very much for being with us today, and hopefully we we'll get a nice turnout to uh, view the film Finding Jen's Voice. And as I said, we'll be talking more about domestic violence in the next week or so.
4: Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much, Scott.
1: And uh, coming up on Monday's show, you may have heard that uh, Pennsylvania's uh, American Civil Liberties Union called for legalizing marijuana in Pennsylvania. We're going to talk about legalizing marijuana on Monday's program.
0: Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. It's 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart.